You could be seated. Well, I don't know who else is keeping track, but I haven't preached here since December 24th. It is typical after Christmas for me to have a couple of weeks where I'm not preaching. I've just found that to be a helpful rhythm uh, in my ministry, in my work year. Uh, but this year, we had a funeral out of town, and then we had a wedding out of town, uh, and then we got the COVID, and... Um, so it's been a minute since I've been up here in this capacity. But like you, uh, I have thoroughly been blessed by these weeks since Christmas to sit under the preaching of uh, able men like Pastor Randy and Caleb and Nathan Sherman and Pastor Chase. And so today I pick up the mantle and we turn to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13 in your Bibles if you have one with you. If not, the text will be up on the screens eventually. The life of faith has many ups and downs to it. Ups and downs and ups and downs. The Christian life is not stagnant. Neither is it a straight line if it were to be charted or graphed. We know from experience, let alone the Bible itself, that there are good days and there are bad days. There are highlights and there are lowlights. There are even seasons that are better or worse than others. Proverbs 24, verse 16 says, Though the righteous fall seven times, yet they rise again. Of course, each one of us has the personal responsibility to press toward the good, the godly, to flee sin and failure, and also to repent and return to the Lord when we fall. Christians persevere, and so we must persevere if we are truly his. But equally true Maybe even more definitively, we need God to do it. We need him to see us through. We need the Lord to pick us up when we fall. He is the one who grants repentance. He restores the wayward soul. And so it is true that Christians are preserved the Lord must preserve us if we will be preserved. And he will preserve us if we're his. He who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ, Paul wrote to the Philippians. So the life of faith is one of inevitable ups and downs and ups again. And Abram later named Abraham, is a powerful example of faith and failure, of good days and bad days. And we saw both of those, faith and failure, last week from Genesis chapter 12. In that all-important chapter, Genesis 12, God 
gave great, massive promises to Abraham and his offspring. It's the first three verses of chapter 12, if you weren't with us last week. But you should know that Abraham responded at first in great faith to this call and to these promises, leaving behind family and familiarity and false gods. And that alone is wonderfully encouraging. Remember, he came to the land that God had promised him, and there he worshipped. And yet, there's a second half to the chapter, chapter 12, amidst a severe famine. In fear, Abram fled to Egypt. And that alone might signal a lapse in faith, but it got worse. To protect his own hide, he was willing for his wife to be taken into Pharaoh's harem having been caught in the lie to Pharaoh, having temporarily abandoned his wife to Pharaoh, by the end of chapter 12, Abraham was told to get out of Egypt. And where shall he go from there? What will happen next? How will he fare? How will his walk with the Lord go? Well, there's a journey of faith, and then there's a journey of failure that we saw last week. But this week, we see a happier day. Though a righteous man falls even seven times, yet he will rise. And Abraham shows us just that. Let's read the chapter together, Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, 
Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see. I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This passage may seem strange to us at first. We might quickly wonder how much of this applies to us today. But I hope you'll see with me that though seemingly strange at first, this passage is just rich with relevance and importance for us. Following the literary structure will help us. So four R words will help us chart the turns in the story. The first R word is restoration. There's a gracious restoration in the first four verses. Abram's journey out of Egypt back to where he was before he left for Egypt signals to us repentance and his restoration. He literally retraces his steps that he made heading to Egypt. Now returning to that special place where God said back in chapter 12 verse 7, It is to your offspring I will give this land. Remember the first three verses of Genesis 12. There God said, go to a place that I will give to you and your offspring. In verse 4 of chapter 12, Abram went, not knowing where he was going. But then eventually he came to Canaan. He came to the oak at Morah. And there God said, I am giving you this land that you're on. And so after the debacle in Egypt, Abram returns to that land, the promised land, the place where God last spoke to Abram, the place where Abram last worshipped this God. And now he returns with greater wealth than before. God's graciousness, his undeserved graciousness is just on display all over this passage. You see verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Of course, he was well off back at the beginning of the story when he left home. But apparently his wealth has increased from his time in Egypt and perhaps because of him selling his wife into Pharaoh's harem. It was back in chapter 12, verse 16, that it just said in passing that it was for Sarai's sake that Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. So he doesn't deserve any added blessing, but that's what God has given him. God has been abundantly gracious despite his failure in Egypt. In fact, there's a a really neat word play here in the Hebrew. You see chapter 12, verse 10, that there was a great famine. 
Well, the word great there in the Hebrew, it, it means heavy. It's the same word we get glory, heavy. There was a famine that was heavy. There was a heavy famine. And then chapter 13, verse 2, we read that Abraham was very rich, heavy. He was heavy with riches. It's, it's a wordplay to show that God is boomeranging the circumstances from heavy famine to heavy riches. And having returned to that spot where he once was, what does he do next? Verse 4, he came to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. In other words, he worshipped. He worshipped his God. Like Noah, who built an altar for the Lord's worship and sacrifices once he reached dry ground back in chapter 8, Abram has done the same kind of thing. The altar represents God's presence. It's to be a, a small, holy place. It's not unlike the garden where God met with his first people. It's not unlike what later would be the tabernacle and the temple. It's the place of God's dwelling. The altar here is not totally unlike what it means for us as Christians to come together in corporate worship. Of course, this place, these walls, this structure is in itself holy, they're no longer holy places like that. That has changed. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on, by the way. But Abram's altar is where he met with God, like you and I meet with God, like we do this morning. He called on God's name. He called on the name of the Lord. Not merely to ask God for things that he thought he needed. I'm sure that's part of it, but calling on the name of the Lord means to meet with him, to worship him, to look to him, and yes, to pray to him. Remember, it was the godly line of Seth back in Genesis 4. They were a people who began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's what Abram does here when he reaches that familial, familiar altar. And now he, he, no doubt, calls on the name of the Lord, giving thanks and praise, worship, and asking for help. Now, with fresh awareness of his sin and fresh awareness of God's restoring grace, it is a beautiful, full restoration. After that breathtaking, multi-layered failure in Egypt and all that it represented, he simply returned to God. You notice that? Drew pointed out to me at lunch this Thursday, he said, no new word from the Lord was needed as Abram departed from Egypt. He didn't need God to come and say that the promises of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 are still intact and his sin doesn't invalidate them. He didn't need that because the promises were still intact. He simply came back. 
And some of you are here today and you need to come back to him. And you can. We've all been there. You're in a season of fear and failure and sin and frustration and doubt and despair and spiritual numbness and you feel stuck there. I say to you, you don't need God to say something new to you that he hasn't already said. And you don't need God to do something for you or show you something that he hasn't already done. You don't need to clean yourself up in Egypt to come back to the altar. You just come. You just come. You just count on his unchanging grace. Remember, Jesus said to that church in Ephesus, in Revelation 2, one of those seven churches, he said, you've lost your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and return. It's like the prodigal who simply went back home and was received. Abram is a wonderful model of faith and repentance and restoration. And even more so, this story is a wonderful example of God's restoring grace. Even though it's not explicit, it's certainly there. Even more than showing us what kind of man Abraham was, Genesis 13 shows us what kind of God we share. And yet, walking with the Lord isn't just altars and reconciliation and promises. It's still a bit of a roller coaster. And so we shouldn't be too surprised that there's another turn or test right around the corner. Secondly, there's a growing rivalry at the same time. A growing rivalry just like the famine of chapter 12 was a test of his faith, now friction, familial friction, becomes another test. There's rivalry, tension, strife between Abram's people and the people of Lot, his nephew. Look down at verse 5 to 7. I'll read them again Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Their possessions were so great. Verse 7, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The very wealth that God had provided them became the basis for strife between Abram's men and Lot's men. The plot of land they were on wasn't big enough for the both of them, at least not for all that livestock. And this should remind us of the broader principles we find in Scripture about wealth. Wealth can be rightly seen as a good gift from God to be enjoyed and used wisely for his greater good and ours. 
Wealth isn't innately evil, but wealth inevitably introduces new temptations. Have you been wealthy enough to know? Remember, Proverbs teaches us to pray, Lord, don't make me so poor I'm tempted to steal. Don't make me so rich that I forget you. Mo money, mo problems, as they say. <laughs> or, or put more poetically, or just more simply, is the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, who warned that some who desire to get rich fall into temptation, a snare, into many senseless, harmless desires, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, simply wanting to get rich. So that's potentially what's at stake in squabbles about money and possessions, nothing less than ruin. So tensions grew between the families and eventually became seemingly insurmountable. They could not dwell together. That's rivalry. But then thirdly, there's resolution. A godly resolution. Now remember, Abram is the uncle, Lot is the nephew. And I think it's also likely that Lot's wealth was mostly an extension of his uncle Abraham's. All the descriptions of wealth and possessions before chapter 13, they're all on Abram's side. And so Lot's wealth in Genesis 13, though real, though stated, yes, it's likely inherited wealth from his rich uncle Abram. So consider what could have been said under these circumstances of growing tension and conflict. What Abram could have said to his nephew is, if you guys got a problem with this, you can just go. I'll keep my cattle. I'll, I'll tell you what, you can have a tenth of what you had before. Go home, little man. He would have had every right, culturally speaking, to say that to his nephew. But what Abram did instead, verse 8, he said, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and mine. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll take the right, and vice versa. Do you see what this showed? On Abram's part, it showed his generosity, his humility, his deference. It shows him laying aside what is his, laying aside his rights. It's a great example of Romans 12. As much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all. Though it's not the main point of our passage, Genesis 13 is actually a helpful anecdote of godly conflict resolution. Abram took the initiative. He didn't presume motives of the other party. He sought the best for the other party. He gave, he deferred. So often in our conflicts, whoever 
started it, however it arose, whoever is more at fault, it matters not, there's often a stalemate. Neither party budges. Maybe you need this passage today to remind you that you might need to be the one to just defer. You might be 10% in the wrong, they 90% in the wrong, but as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Take the step, make the initiative. Do what Abram did. Abram wasn't stubborn and petty and self-protecting like we so often could be. And he could offer Lot any portion of the land, not because he was giving up the promised land or didn't care about a portion of it. It's, It's because God had promised it all to Abram anyway. And it was all contested land in these days anyway. Keep that in mind. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also dwelling in the land in these days. It's not like Abram held some title or deed of it. And so Abram offers Lot to take his cattle and go wherever he wants to go and take whatever land he thinks he needs, and then Abram will take the rest. And we can consider here what Lot might have said in response to this, what he should have said in response to this generous offer of Uncle Abram. He should have said, I'm not leaving you. I'm sorry. Whatever's happened between us, let's resolve it. I mean, after all, God is with you. The promises of God have graciously been set upon you and your people. I want my people to be your people and your land to be my land, as Ruth said. I mean, he could have said, where shall I go? You literally have the words of eternal life. But instead, Lot did this. Verse 10. He lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and he journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, we're given some subtle clues here, stacked one upon another, that all make for a spiritually bleak picture. It was a godly resolution on Abram's part, but it wasn't godly for Lot. He looked out and saw a portion of land that looked lush and rich and abundant and fertile. And that's all that mattered. He, he looked out and he saw something that was like the Garden of Eden, which you might think, well, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, but he's only seeing the beauty, the lushness, the produce of it. He's not thinking presence of God. He thinks of it more like Egypt. Egypt, famous for its Nile and riches and abundance. That's what he sees as he looks and then heads eastward. 
East is always bad in the Bible. That's why you moved west, right? Unless you came from California, I'm not talking to you. The rest of us moved west. West is best. And in the Bible, it just it happens to be that way. Ever since the garden, usually eastward is bad and westward is good. He went as far as Sodom. He went to the edge of the promised land and then outside it. To Sodom. That place that would one day be destroyed under God's judgment because of its wickedness. Now, Lot doesn't know it will be destroyed, but we, the readers, sure do. If you haven't read Genesis 18 and 19 yet, you get the hint here that that's what's coming. Verse 10. Is that where it is? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We also get the comment in verse 13. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners. Lot doesn't know destruction's coming, but he does know that that's a land famous for its wickedness, and he is bothered by that, none at all. He looks with the eyes of the world. He, he chose his lot according to the best chances for ease and comfort and wealth and prosperity. That decision would eventually lead to his destruction, but that destruction can be traced back to this fork in the road, this parting of the ways, this choosing according to the ways of the world. In short, one man here was walking by faith, not by sight. Another man was walking by sight, not by faith. And there is some low-hanging fruit here for us, if we dare pick it up, some application. Isn't this so instructive for our decision-making in life? Will I take this job that is more lucrative than my current one to go to a city where I don't know if there's a good church or not? Now, you can find that out. You can do your homework before you decide to take a job in a city you're not that familiar with. And you should. To not do so is to go the way of Lot. It may not end in your ruin, but it may not, it may not be days of fruitfulness and encouragement in the Lord. We should be asking ourselves, what's... What's my worldview? What's my outlook on life? What do I think the good life is? What, what is driving us? What's driving our decisions? What are we seeking? Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat and what you'll drink and what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The Gentiles, the unbelievers seek after that stuff. But your heavenly father knows what you need. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that other stuff will be added to you. Are we thinking like the world? Romans 12, 
famously tells us not to be conformed to the thinking of this world, but instead to have our minds transformed by the renewing of our minds. Or Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right, but in the end it it is destruction. While we leave Lot in Sodom for now, and attention turns squarely to Abram and his God. The fourth R, God's reiteration. Verses 14 to 18 is God's reiteration. A reiteration of the promises he's already expressed to Abram. Those promises back at the beginning of chapter 12 of a land and an offspring that would be a great nation and from them would come blessing to the nations, the whole world. All that is now reiterated. About 10 or 11 times in the book of Genesis, the Abrahamic promises are rehearsed, retold, even expanded, and then passed down generation to generation. Just think of how gracious it is that that's in our Bibles. If you wonder whether this little patch of promises is going to be significant, it just keeps getting repeated all through Genesis and Exodus and in the prophets and in the New Testament. Now with these repeated reiterations of the promises in the book of Genesis, each one of them is unique. They all have the same basic promises and elements to them, but each one is unique. And what makes this one unique in chapter 13 is that it has a couple of exercises to it. There's a look around and a walkabout. A look around, verses 14 to 15. God says, lift up your eyes and look. It's the language said of Lot as he lifted up his eyes and saw. But, but that language, it can be good or bad, right? I mean, Lot is lifting up his eyes and just his eyes are landing where they want to land what is pleasing and good and seems right and best for him. And here God is directing Abram's sight. Lift up your eyes and look to this specific land. Look, north and south and east and west, the four points of the compass. That is all coming to you and yours, Abram. There's a look around, there's a walkabout, verse 17. Did you see that? Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. That's a big land. That's going to take a long time. That That takes some significant effort. To do this walkabout. But it's a great faith lesson. It was vividly showing Abram just how massive the land was and how sure God's promises were. It's like he's doing the inspection before the day when he receives the deed. It wasn't all his yet, but he walked about it like it was. The promises of God are that sure and solid. And the promises here are are narrowed down from the first three verses of Genesis 12. Really here, there's just two, two, two different kinds. 
people and place. A great people and a specific big place. Now, with this, notice that Abram turns again to worship. How does this chapter end? He went back to where he was, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Our chapter begins and ends in worship. That's what it's about. Worship in light of God's grace. Worship in light of God's future promises. So shouldn't we, like Abraham, and even more so, now that God has done more than in the days of Abraham, shouldn't we look back, look ahead, and worship God? I mean, isn't that just, is that your Christian life? That's mine. Fail. Come back to him. Thank him. Worship him. Press on. Hear his word again. And worship him afresh. Now, in the rest of our time, just a few more minutes, maybe five, can I just remind us, as Christians, where these specific promises given to Abraham of a people and a place, where these are going in the plan of God. Okay, I want us to have that clearly in mind because the Abrahamic covenant's a big deal. We've already given one chapter to it. It'll come up again in chapter 15, again in 17, again in 18, again in 22. Just keeps going. So I, I want us to see where these themes go. I want to paint the big picture for us. Of course, I can't be exhaustive. There are books on that. But I want to paint the picture because a lot has happened since these promises were given and it is still unfolding before our very eyes and will be until Jesus returns. And all of it, as we, as we ponder this, as we ponder where these promises have gone and are going, it should produce in us worship, worship. And so we could just think of the book of Genesis as one exercise for this. We could see the promises of Genesis 12 and 13 just trickle toward fulfillment through one messed up family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his 12 sons. We won't do that. That's for weeks ahead. We could look to the book of Exodus and find there a nation, a people, Many in number, but under slavery. And yet God is going to free them that they might be led to the promised land. Well, we could fast forward to the time of King David where much of the promises had already at that point been fulfilled and promises at that time were even being enlarged. Or we could just... We could take a shortcut to where all the promises funnel into one man, Jesus. And from him, there comes the blessing to the whole world. Picture a, a two-sided funnel. 
Can you picture this with me? Big, then little, then big. All these promises of the Old Testament come funneling in on one guy, God in the flesh, Jesus. And from him, the blessing to the whole world promised back in Genesis 12 and 13 is fulfilled. I mean, that's why Jesus said radical, mind-blowing things like this. He said, Father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Whoa. That's why Matthew begins his gospel account with this genealogy spelling out how Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the one to inherit and enact all these promises of old. It mattered that Jesus was truly of the offspring of Abraham. And that's why Matthew and Luke spell that out for us with a genealogy. But now that he's come, now that he has died, now that he has risen, now that the gospel spreads in the world, now anyone can get in on that blessing regardless of their ethnic heritage. Isn't that what Chase was showing us last week with Galatians 3? The sons of Abraham, now, these days, by definition, that is those who are of faith. Jew or Gentile matters not. You are sons of Abraham, heirs according to the promise if you are Christ's. In Matthew 3, I love this. Do you remember this? When John the Baptist was preaching repentance, paving the way for the Messiah, and he warned the Pharisees who were exploring what John was teaching and what he was up to. And, and John the Baptist said to these Pharisees, do not presume to say we are Abraham's sons. God can raise up from these stones sons of Abraham. And I am one of them. Think of how Matthew ends his gospel account. The Great Commission, remember that? It's with all authority that Jesus sends his disciples into all the world to make more disciples from all the nations. And he promises to be with them for it all, through it all, to the end of the age. And so that's where the promises of a people, a multitude, have gone, are going, and will continue to go. God is making one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile. That's, that's Ephesians 2. Now, if you're a Christian, that means you're in. You're part of this. You're part of the whole package. You get all the blessings. It means if you're a Christian, regardless of your heritage... Regardless of your past, you're not a second-class citizen in the plan of God and among the people of God. And there's no going back. That's the way forward. That's the way it is. And if you're not yet a Christian, 
Jesus Christ, you've got to understand, he's the funnel of this whole Bible. It's a big book, I know, but it simplifies it a little bit to say that the Old Testament was anticipating him, and then he comes, and in light of what he did in his death and resurrection, he now offers forgiveness to all who have gone astray. That's all of us. And he restores us to himself. He welcomes us in. He brings us in to worship. He makes us his people. That happens simply with us believing it, trusting in it, and asking for it. That's people, but how about place? Is place important in the plan of God? It was. It sure was. I mean, that's what the whole Old Testament was really doing in many ways. From one place, you can call it the promised land, you can call it Israel, you can call it Jerusalem. From that one place, God was going to provide an epicenter to which his Messiah would come and from which Messiah would send out his disciples into all the world. That's the purpose of the place in the plan of God. So now God's presence isn't specialized on a plot of land or on an altar or in a tabernacle or temple that will one day may or may not be built. This is why Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, the time now is, the time was coming and now is, that no longer will you worship God on this mountain or that mountain. You'll now worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's now no longer about that place it's now determined by this person, Jesus. And we worship him wherever we are. The writer of Hebrews insists that there were hints back at the beginning of Genesis that this whole thing was going global. Listen to Hebrews 11 again. Jose read it for us. Maybe hear it with now some fresh ears. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He and his offspring, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, even while they dwelled, dwelt in the promised land. Doesn't all this, the writer of Hebrews says, doesn't all this make it clear that they were seeking a homeland, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to, call, to be called their God because he has prepared for them a city. A heavenly city, an eternal one. That's where this is headed. There's no going back. That's why Revelation 21 describes for us a new Jerusalem, not an old one. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That's 
the dwelling place of God. Stand in awe of all that. Marvel at it. Worship this God. Take a look back at all that he's done, all that he's brought you through, all the sin he has tolerated, more than tolerated, forgiven and buried in your past, and worship him. Take a look around here today. Look at what he's doing. He's at work. This is the fulfillment of the covenant made to Abraham in the flesh. He's doing more. It's not stopping here. This Sunday is not as good as it gets. Look ahead. Those promises of old, those promises that got enlarged, those promises that have blown our minds, these promises, they are growing, they're swelling, they will be fulfilled. And in the meantime, there are ups and downs in our Christian lives, yes, but our faithful God has seen us through, will see us through, and he will bring us all the way home. I close with this old Rich Mullins song. Maybe you know it. Oh God, you are my God. I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning. I will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you'll lead me. And I'll follow you all of my days. In one of the verses, Mullen says, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been for me. He was a stranger in this land, and I am that no less than he. And on this road to righteousness, sometimes the climb can be so steep, I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach. And I will follow you all of my days. And I will follow you all of my days. And step by step, you lead me. And I will follow you all of my days. May that be our hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your wonderful, rich, mind-blowing word. Help us to take it in down deep, to believe it to worship you in light of it. We thank you that you are the God of Abraham. You are the God of each one of us who are yours. We thank you for your amazing plan, your amazing promises, and for Jesus at the center of it all. We pray in his name, amen.